Hello and welcome to the From Grief to Gold podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Ann. Today I have Dr. Sherry Wallig. She is a clinical psychologist, speaker, podcaster, author, and mental health advocate. She owns a company called Zen Founder, which helps entrepreneurs and leaders navigate transition, rapid growth, loss, conflict, or any manner of complex human experience. She is also the host of the Zen Founder podcast, all of which can be found in the show notes. And she just recently released a new book called Touching Two Worlds, which is also in the show notes. It's a little bit of what we discuss in today's episode about writing a book about grief and the experience, as well as the importance of community and just the the honesty of grief and essentially it's embeddedness in our lives moving forward. It's not something that you just heal from and you move on, but it becomes a part of you. So I welcome you to today's episode. Also, it's really cool, but she does circus. I keep forgetting how to say it. Aerialist, circus aerialist. And I think that's just so great. But again, all of that information is in the show notes. So without further ado, welcome to today's episode. I also want to add just like a quick preface. My audio wasn't so great in today's episode, but Dr. Sherry sounded amazing. So kudos to her. And unfortunately, the mom life totally came in with a couple of little interruptions for my my little one because he was on break and such is life. But again, it's a wonderful episode and I hope you enjoy. I have Dr. Sherry Walling here with me today. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I thought we would share, I, we got connected through Scott with um, Drive On Podcast, and I'm super grateful that he connected us. Um, I've been looking at getting more mental health providers on the platform. The unique experience with Dr. Sherry Walling is that she's also writing a book about some of her own life circumstances that have come up. So I thought I would just have you kind of share about your journey into becoming a doctor in clinical psychology, and then a little bit about the process of your book and things like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for having me and for being curious about my story. Uh, I, I became a psychologist for many of the reasons that lots of people become psychologists or mental health professionals. They're I'm just deeply curious about humans and their experiences. And I like asking the like real question, the meaty, deep question. And so I also had an experience. I studied abroad my junior year of, of college in West Africa and became really interested in kind of understanding humans in cross-cultural contexts and what breaks people and what helps people thrive. So generally speaking, I became a psychologist because I was just really curious um, most of my work life has been in the field of trauma and I've worked a lot in several years with the veteran community, um, at the VA hospitals in Los Angeles and in Boston. And so I've really specialized in helping people with high intensity experiences, high intensity jobs cope with, you know, the challenges they experience. I most recently have written a book about grief that is largely based on my own journey, but also is infusing a lot of my experience as a clinician into the story. 
And this book really happened in reaction to a couple of losses that happened very close together. Um, my dad was diagnosed with cancer and we lost him 18 months later. And right alongside his illness and decline, my brother, who was 33 at the time, really did a deep dive into his own addiction, uh, alcohol addiction, and then his own depression. And we lost him to suicide six months after we lost my dad. So sort of this intense period of watching people that I love come undone, fall apart, and eventually die. And then my own journey with what it's been like to be in the world without them and to cope with grief in a pretty intensive way. I wanted to, I was curious because it is like a really interesting, um, I come from like medical field and while I wasn't like a mental health provider by technicalities, like, like I, again, like with you, just this curiosity and, and people in understanding how the brain works and things like that. And mm. I, I know I had a lot of people just because of being a medic in the military, I kind of became an unofficial therapist for them. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I think something I, I, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, especially because of like becoming a doctor in it. Like I just dabbled in understanding in books and things like that. But I'm curious to hear about going from, you know, having that clinical background and being there for your clients versus the experience on the other side of grief and trauma? Yeah, in some ways, it's sort of parallel universes, right? When I'm showing up for my clients, when I'm present for them, there's this professional part of me that is driving the conversation. And that's in my job as a caretaker, as a you know, as a psychologist, my own personal experience gets a little bit segmented from that because by nature, I'm not, it's not a mutual relationship. I'm not like, oh, well, let me tell you about my Friday night when I'm sitting down with my clients. Like I'm used to listening and orienting around them. So for my own grief, like I needed my own clinician, like I needed my own therapist, I needed my own healing journey. Um, I will say I kept working through most of my grief experiences and most of the time that was a good choice. Sometimes it wasn't, right? Sometimes my own grief was too raw or it got sort of triggered by something that my client was experiencing and I had to be really careful and aware of those moments to make sure that I wasn't, you know, letting my own personal experience like infringe on my client's healing in any in any way. That's kind of my ethical responsibility as a professional. I can imagine because I, I know with me working through like my book, like just seeing how touchy a lot of those topics can end up being. So I was definitely curious with the healing journey, like if, if you did end up taking time or not, because I can only imagine how, how touching or like triggering certain things could be with certain clients. Um, and then I will you, say that most of my work now is in consulting with entrepreneurs. So I don't do a lot of really traditional clinical work. I don't do a, a lot of like traditional trauma therapy at this point in my career. Um, but of course, humans are humans. And so you have these deep, close, connected relationships with them. And sometimes, you know, 
they get diagnosed with cancer. So that's one of the things that happened is that right after my dad was diagnosed with cancer, one of my very long term clients was just diagnosed with cancer. And it became so difficult for me to really hold space for her because I was watching my dad die of the same thing. And I felt like she was going to die. You know, it just became really kind of convoluted. And you said, so is your, for your book, uh, do you have your release date? Because it's not officially released, right? It is is out July 26th. So it's for sale everywhere. It's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all of the bookstores. Uh, You can, it can be pre-ordered, but it, it hits the shelves, so to speak on the 26th of July. That's so exciting. I, I feel like like it's funny because July was when like last year was my official like one year of me starting my book and just the whole journey of working through the like reliving everything. I'd love to hear, especially because you do have that background of just what that process was like working through those memories again and deciding to write this book in general. Well, it's been a few different layers, I'll say. So I actually wrote this book in real time. I didn't write it retroactively. I wrote it while it was happening. So when my dad, like the week after he was diagnosed with cancer, I started writing, not with the intention of it being a book, but with the knowledge that I needed to get the details of these experiences out of me. I needed to put them down somewhere. So it really kind of started as my journal, but it became more of like a a love story, right? I was just really processing my feelings about family and what mattered to me and all these different things. And then I was occasionally sending paragraphs or essays or chapters to people in my life, like my friends or my clients. And so it became clear that I had, that I was writing something that I wanted to share, but it only became clear a little bit later in the story. So most of the book was written in real time while it was happening. Um, Some challenges, though, happen when you're transitioning a book or you're transitioning your writing. I guess you're shifting from a writer to an author. So at first it existed for me, and now it exists for others. And that's an important transition. So my editor really wanted me to go back through the content that I'd written and think about it from the context of the the reader. What would I have to offer, whether suggestions or thoughts or reflection questions or breathing exercises or yoga practices, what would I have to offer the reader? And to really be mindful of them as an active entity in the experience and the process. So that was really helpful. I will say that on a personal level, reading the audiobook um, was hard. It was hard. There were, there were multiple moments that I just had to like stop and cry. <laughs> so this poor audio engineer, this really nice guy named Jim is like on the other side of the glass wall from the studio where I'm recording and his job is to make sure it's really you know, perfect and sounds good and all of that. But basically he's bearing witness to me having this like really personal emotional experience. And he's like, oh my God, this lady just keeps crying. Uh, He was lovely, very, very kind. But that was certainly a moment where the story became really personal again. And I was kind of reworking through some difficult moments as I read the book out loud. 
That's something that I, I'm not at that point yet. I So this this is my first time with me writing my own book as well. So I've had to learn things as well. Like I had a friend like work through it and she, I learned like you mentioned with like having to understand a complete stranger is reading your book. They don't know your backstory. They don't know these things. And so you don't think to add details until somebody else is like, no one's going to know that part. I was like, oh, right. Like I should add that in there. I should add this in there. But also, um, I kind of work back around, like backwards, and so I'm working on my ebook. But I, because of the way that I started my my physical book, I had to like go backwards and re like calibrate mm. everything to be for the ebook. Uh, but I've definitely been curious about the audio because that's going to be on my next step when I have extra means to go and stay at a studio. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna like. I'm going to cry. Like, gonna, <laughs> like how many takes do I have to take to, to make this an actual audiobook? Yeah. Also, you don't have to go to a studio. I mean, so my first book, I did, I self-published it and did the whole thing myself. And the audio quality that we can now do with microphones and, you, you know, your podcast setup is totally competent for Audible or for any of the audio distributors. The reason that I did this book in a studio is because it's traditionally published through a publisher. So they have, you know, they have opinions about how it should happen. That makes sense. That's something too. I was, I, cause I had been back and forth, but if I wanted to like reach out to somebody and find a publisher, but I was like, this is my first book. It's my baby. I'm going to self publish it and it's just going to be all mine. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's very, um, it's definitely like an interesting experience. Um, with your, like, with you working on it. So you said like you worked on it as, as you were going through that. And that's the same with, with your brother going through, um, like the rehabs and things like that. It was all real time, just kind of like you, like sharing your thoughts basically and your feelings as it was happening. Yeah. Honestly, most of my book was written on the airplane or written at like three in the morning. So I have a whole chapter in the book about how to cry on an airplane, uh, I live in Minneapolis and my family lives in California. My brother lived in Montana. So whenever there was any kind of like crisis, I was on a plane, right? I was just going to sit in the hospital, going to help with things, bringing, I brought my brother back to Minneapolis for a while. So there was just a lot of air travel and it was like the one time in my life as a mother, as a professional, when I kind of just had to be still and I didn't have really good distractions. I mean, you know, there's shows to watch and things like that. But then I didn't want to talk to people. So I really went inside. And it's where a lot of the book was written because I was going to or coming from many of these experiences. And so I knew that I needed to kind of process it emotionally. I think that's something with me. Like, I, I don't fly as much anymore, but... That I feel like that was always my thing too. Or most of my book, I, I worked a nine to five job just because I, I knew I couldn't do anything else mentally or emotionally except for write my book. So I just got like a random day job. So mm -hmm. I would be up like so late at night just jotting around like my feelings. And I was like, is this even going to be a book? Like how would I combine all this together? But it's it's definitely been quite the journey. I think it's healing too. Um. And so one of the things, so I, when I was working through my book, I didn't have the options for like therapy. 
the way that I wanted to, just because of circumstances, I didn't have the financials to do like talk space like I had done before. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, (laughs) I think he's over it. This is my first week where I have like a full week of people and he's just over it. (laughs) I'm not being quiet anymore. It's like, no, I'm done with this. And I just got him Pokemon Go. So now he's like all about like, let's go Pokemon, let's go Pokemon. <laughs> it's so exciting. I know. He's like, can we evolve this? Um, but okay. <laughs> I have to do this with my own thing too. And like some of it's like, I'm like, it's just candid. Like, you know, I have a kid. Like it happened. Yeah. <laughs> and I think people are getting a lot more used to it too, just because of remote work and like, I feel like that's happening that happens to everybody now. It's like a dog comes through, a kid yeah. wanders in. Yeah. Yes. Um, but okay. So like for me, I, I didn't have like a mental health provider around to be able to like work through this. So I kind of just like put myself into the trauma without really um, having a whole much of a game plan. And so I thought it was, I like that you mentioned about how even you as a clinical therapist, like you had a therapist to work with or a provider as well. And one of the things that I've shared on my podcast a lot is like, I fell into like a heavy state of depersonalization and derealization until quite literally like a month or two ago is when I finally was having far more clear days than non if the best way to like simplify that. Um, but I guess for, for one of the things that I've come to like learn is like, you can do it on your own, but I think, I feel that the, the healing process is a lot longer without having that person in front of you that is a professional. And like, I had to rely on YouTube. <laughs> I didn't even know what was going on. And then I finally Googled some of the symptoms and I was like, Oh, I'm not crazy. My body is just trying to protect me. And then that kind of helped with me moving forward. Um, but I'd be curious to hear, cause I know not everybody is able to go see a mental health professional or maybe they can, but it's not going to be for another couple of months. Um, so I'd be curious to hear from your professional standpoint, like if people or clients have had to deal with that or any recommendations you might have for somebody who is dealing with trauma or is trying to just get the help where they can. Yeah. I mean, I think humans have been coping with overwhelming experiences our entire existence. And sometimes we put it together well, and sometimes there are like long lasting scars that create trouble for the rest of our lives. I think that because most of what hurts us is the rupture or loss of a relationship or the violation of a relationship, those are like how humans get hurt, that healing almost always is relational. It doesn't have to be a formal mental health professional. It's not always necessary or accessible, but there are lots of resources, especially for different kinds of grief that are free and available, like Grief Share or NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, has a lot of grief programs related to people who've lost people to suicide, um, certainly lots of veterans organizations. So there's lots of like free or low cost available choices for a community of grievers that can be helpful to you. Um, 
And then there's good old fashioned like friends and family if they're safe and trustworthy. So I, I think that grief is really isolating by definition, right? There's been the rupture or loss of a major relationship and that leaves us feeling alone and really aware of like our existential aloneness. And I, I, I don't think it's something we totally want to do by ourselves. So I, I really advise that people find a, a grief community, even if it's just a couple of friends that you're like, look, here's what's happening to me. Can you be a person that I can talk to about what I'm experiencing? Um, but I, I do think it's a good season of life to have an objective, educated, thoughtful helper. So if there's any possibility of accessing a mental health professional, especially, you know, as people who have been widowed think about when is it time to date again or like how do I navigate this with my kid or, you know, there's just lots of complexity. So it's super helpful to have a person who can be in it with you. And it's funny, like the the part of like the relational side, because I finally come to the terms where I'm like, okay, there's only so much self-reflection that you can do before you have to start applying it to other people, in, including human interaction in it to know that you're healing fully. <laughs> and, Otherwise, it's and just it, an echo chamber. There's just not yeah. a lot of new information. It's like your own ideas and thoughts swirling around, which, you know, isn't terrible but may you may get stuck yes like I I've been and it's going to like that whole healing journey it's not circular like I've been like or it's not linear I guess I should say not circular um it's definitely been quite the experience because I was like oh I'm healed like I feel great like I'm fine like you know it's great and then I start working on the book or actually, yeah, to kind of go back, because I don't know if I, I had shared this with you or not, but I uh, was working on my master's of social work because I'm like, oh, I'm going to become a mental health professional, like this and this and this. And I was like, no, I'm not. I'm not healed right now. I need to, I need to heal. And it just brought up a lot of triggers that I think just being busy with life and doing things I didn't realize I never actually worked through or it was just that, that new trigger that brought new emotions up. Yeah. Um, but it's fascinating to see how like you can think that you're you're like oh no I'm good to go like it's been a couple of years like I worked through some of those emotions and then something new pops up and it's not necessarily that you weren't healing before but just now there's a new level that you need to work through I um, don't think we heal from grief like I don't think it's binary like broken or healed I I think that we go through different ebbs and flows of grief and that grief is with us as long as love is with us. And so it's it's sort of something that gets integrated into who we are, into how we see ourselves in the world more than like a problem to solve. That makes sense. Yeah, because it's, it's like, oh, I fixed the problem. Like, it's fine. It's like, no, but this is part of your life. And like, this is a part of you now. Like, I like I mentioned with me kind of getting into this stage where I'm like, Oh, like I don't need to just do this all by myself and avoid people now. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I need to go and heal with other people as well. And it's definitely been like an experience of 
it's okay to trust other people and it's okay that you're gonna feel sad sometimes like yeah. <laughs> like and they're gonna understand <laughs> so it's it's definitely yeah. a unique like like this is just part of it now like this comes with me yeah. now and most times I'll be okay and other times it might come up randomly uh, I kind of I feel like I live here now, like in the land of grief. And I'm like, I'm just getting my throw pillows out, making it comfortable, right? I Decorating it the way that I want it to be. Because I, I think once we're open to grief, once we're aware of how loss feels, like there are lots of losses. And some of them are losses due to death. Some of them are losses due to, you know, lack of safety, lack of plans, all of the losses that people experience during COVID. There's so many losses that we experience in our life that the more comfortable we can get with identifying, understanding, and feeling grief, I think the the easier it will be for us. But if we feel like grief is something that we, okay, like I'm in it, I have to heal it, get over it, move through, like I think that become that urgency isn't helpful. I think too, like acknowledging that it isn't just the loss of a loved one. It can be the loss of that career job, like career path you thought you were going to be going down. And mm. just, it's not just somebody passed away or it'd be like a friendship that, that changed. Yeah. So I think that's really, really important. Um, I wanted to, cause I know I started reading from your book and you mentioned it a little bit about studying abroad. I'm really curious to hear a little bit, and I know it doesn't really relate the book, but kind of like it, I feel like it kind of is a little bit in there. But so you were in West Africa, right? Is that where you said you in were? Ghana? Mm-hmm. So how was that experience and relating to trauma and grief and healing? Because I know that's an area that is its own shape in everything relating to trauma. I'd love to hear how like that experiences and how it's shaped you. I don't know how many years ago that was that you were there, but kind of a long time (laughs) before the internet. Um, (laughs) I actually wrote about it in the book, my experience being in Ghana in a couple different places. One is that I think it did show me that there are all kinds of ways to be whole and to be happy because like the folks that I was interacting with when I was in Ghana, they've known a generally speaking, a lot of grief. Like it's far more likely for a mother to have lost a child or lost a pregnancy than it is in West Africa than it was in my hometown of Northern California. It's far more common for, um, you know, people to be separated from their family members because of financial concerns you know, than it is in my home in Northern California. And so the, as a young person, I was 19 when I went. And so I was having these like really big insights or just picture into the world that there are lots of things that I maybe thought were just really hard, like not survivable, that people around the world survive all the time. And they do that often with a tremendous amount of grace and joy they also do it with a tremendous amount of community. So going to a funeral in West Africa, in Ghana in particular, is very different than going to a funeral in North America. Like there's, it's like a week 
long event. There's wailing, there's dancing, there's all of these different sort of pieces of the ritual that involve different emotional components. People dress alike. There's specific fabric that you wear with colors that indicate mourning. And so there's this whole community identity around loss that is so different than (laughs) exists in the States. And so I think I learned so much about the relational nature of healing, speaking to the earlier part of our conversation, as well as what's survivable. Um, at least those were those were early lessons for me as a young person that I think being in Africa really taught me that have been really important to me in this phase of my life. Relating to so some of the things that I was working through when I was working on my healing, even though of separation and things like that, but I came across like, and I'm not Jewish, but I came across some Jewish traditions about, mm. about grief. And I was Putting like, oh my God, yep. like, this is amazing. Like I wish, you know, our Western culture or things like that would, would take up some of these more traditional things because basically it's like the week or so. And I don't remember all the details because it was just like a a YouTube video or two, but I was like, oh, wow. Like, yeah, community really, really matters. Like it's something that we just were like, oh, sorry about your loss. Like, we'll, we'll see you for one day and then good luck for the rest of your life. Whereas a lot of these other cultures, they they do take the time or, or they have like, they have a script. Yeah. Sort of rules that you follow when somebody dies. That I think is helpful because without it, like, we don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. Should I call? Should I not? Should I send flowers? Should I not? Like, but the script is helpful in these difficult situations. Sorry. As I mentioned earlier, I was like, this is like the one day he's like, mama, I need you for everything. Open everything for me. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's definitely like an area where I, I slacked, not like slacked in, cause we all have our own path and our own healing process. But I feel like a lot of what prolonged my healing has been my lack of community. Like I, I pretty much have lived a majority of my life in flight mode. And so I just run away from problems and then lo and behold, they're still there. <laughs> like they're with, they're with yeah. you wherever you go. Um, and so I'm finally, and of course there's again, like years of different forms of grief, but it was just becoming a technical widow became like, that was the breaking point. Like that was the part where it was like the one you can name. Yes. The label. And so I, that's when I kind of started realizing probably after like moving twice since then, I was like, I'm just running away. Like. I need to figure this out. I need to work through this and slow down and ask for help and like realize that it does take a village. And I think that's something that is a lot harder, especially in America, depending on like, there's some people who have kept like their cultural norms. And so like, they still have communities, but I feel like for the typical American home. Oh. Stop. Mom. All right. Did you want to be quiet though? Okay. Um, I feel like the typical American home, like we just, we kind of tend to lack that community. Um, Mm -hmm. And to kind of bring it back to like the clinical side of things, do you feel like even with your clients, like that they have better, um, not like success stories, but 
when it comes to those who are dealing with the trauma and things like that? I know now you work more with like entrepreneurial side, but in your years of working with patients or clients directly, like having that support system versus not as far as success or better healing. Yeah. So we, we talk about this a little bit in terms of risk and protective factors. Um, so protective factors help protect you against having like a long-term, uh, mental illness or mental health challenge and risk factors make it more likely that you'll have, you know, a challenge. And so by far consistently across different, uh, research questions, having some strong relationships is the most important protective factor for humans. So, you know, people who've gone through the unimaginable things of, of losing a child or, you know, the very imaginable things to you and I, because we've lived through some of them, but the, the sense of not being alone and having someone who needs us, someone who cares about us, those are the, the kinds of experiences that help keep your, your mental health in line, really. So yeah, there's not much, I think that's just like a really clear, consistent finding in the, in the, in the literature is the centrality, the importance of, and you don't have to have a million friends, but you have to have like, who, who will the bring quality, you a sandwich in the, the hospital? Of it. Yep. Yeah. I think too, it's, and again, it goes to like, everybody's culture is different, but just this feeling like, oh, I have to do everything alone. I have to figure this out myself. And then really we're, we're, we're creatures of like, we need, we crave connection. Like you mentioned earlier about a lot of our grief comes from this relationship, these things that end. And so healing with the connections, almost yeah. like this full circle coming back together of, of the grief process. Um, yeah with yes in like a kind of closing um if you have like any specifics relating to either trauma or seeking a professional um or even just working like writing through it like you mentioned you weren't even necessarily going to like be writing a book technically you were just letting those emotions just writing yeah. yeah. Um, I'd love to hear like any recommendations or advice that you'd give to anyone listening who is maybe in, in this process of not really knowing what's going to happen. Like they're dealing with a family member who isn't in the best health right now and just any kind of ways to kind of help push through with that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's really, really important to keep your body moving I, th I think, you know, when we keep our hands busy, when we have a garden, when we jog regularly, when we do things that we are putting our bodies in motion, those are like really, really helpful healing things. They're healing because they like biochemically release dopamine into our systems. They're also healing because they give us some structure to what feels like a surreal experience. Um, they also give us like directly solvable problems. So you can't solve the problem of cancer, but you can solve the problem of like running one more mile. So I think really using your body as a source of healing is something that is not often talked about, but really, really important. 
I love that. And I think I, one of the things we didn't mention about was the, your background with like yoga. And I always, I can't ever say it right, but the, the other thing that you do. <laughs> I'm an, an aerialist, a circus performer. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I was like, I always measure the name of it. So I'm like, you can go ahead and share that. <laughs> that, that also kind of helped you have like a clear mind and like just something to just be present instead of the what ifs and maybe if I would have or. Yeah, I think it gave me something to do and both an emotional expression and a physical athletic outlet. So finding something that allows you to emote, to express rage, fear, sadness, joy, the full range. And then also something that keeps you in your body. I think those are really, really helpful. Just basic, basic tactics for grief. No, I think you mentioned that because they're and that you it's not just like a just go to the gym. Because I know depending on each person, like going to the gym is only gonna make us think about it more. And so for some people it is getting involved in a class or it is getting involved yeah. in something that requires you to be a lot more focused on things. Yeah. So I think that's great that it's not just like a typical like, oh, just go for a walk or go for, you know, go do the like lifting and things like that. Like there are so many yeah. different ways to get your body moving and to be present with yourself or for somebody, maybe it is just going for a walk and like watching the trees and like counting mm-hmm. how many birds you saw and things like that. So I love yeah. that. Um, and how can people find you? I'm going to add it in the show notes, but if you want to yeah. share just how So my book is called Touching Two Worlds, and it it has a home on the internet at touchingtwoworlds.com. And then I'm also on Twitter and Instagram as at Sherry Walling and live on the internet at sherrywalling.com. Thank you so much for joining me. And I'm looking forward to finishing the book. I know I was skimming through it. I was like, I need to, I know that I'm going to need time to read it, but I'm really (laughs) excited to just see throughout like just from the intro I love it already so I'm looking oh, forward thank to thank you so it. much thanks for having me thank you